0: Radio du
1: Welcome to another and special edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elian Malam and Highland Park, Conservative Temple, congregation at and in Highland Park, New Jersey, each other with our good friends. Hey, Rabbi Barry Chester, Malam and and Rabbi Jeremy Kamanowski at the Anshei Chesed in New York City. Hello, gentlemen. It's great Hello. to see you. both. We are Parsha this is We are recording this on Arab on Arab uh. Pesach, I guess. Triple The the unusual, the unusual twelve percent of the time occurrence of Pesach, Erev Pesach, Chal B'Shabbat. But we're also going to talk about Parsha Tzav, which is a really great Parsha. If you really get into Parsha Tzav, first of all, you do need you get a you. you we will give you a reward. Okay, this is not the Parsha that you turn to first, although. When you dig deep into it, there is a tremendous amount of material in it. The first thing that we want to think about when we talk about Parsha Tzav is that Parsha Tzav reflects a shift in focus. Okay, the 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 the, the Parsha starts with Vayi'beranai Moshele Tzav Vet How is this a shift of focus, Rabbi Barry Chesler? So the first five chapters of
0: Vayikra present the principal sacrifices from the point of view of the offerer, the Israelite who brings his animal or his grain to the altar and makes a sacrifice. In chapter six and seven, which is most of Parshat Tzav, we have the sacrifices from the point of view of the offer, the priest. And this will contain a little, uh, some variations on what the offer is told in the beginning chapters. So in other words, it's, it's a focus and it's a focus
1: directly to the koanim. And, and we have to establish here that the kohanim are in a pre-consecrated state. They're still not yet charged with the service. They are going to be told at the end of this parsha how to do that. We, we saw something like that at the end of the book of um, and uh, but, but at the end of this parsha we will be dealing with the instructions for how the kohanim are ordained, what Moshe will do with them prior to that, yeah. Go ahead. So
0: the the list of sacrifices in chapters six and seven reflects that because the one sacrifice that is different is the special sacrifice for the ordination of the Kohanim, which is mentioned only in the section for the Kohanim and not in the section for the Israelites. All right. So now
1: one specific thing that occurs at the beginning is something that we often connect to a, a key feature of the uh, of uh, the shul. And Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, you happen to be standing. Uh, in my screen, right underneath the nertamid, just put a point to it. <laughs> so yeah. you just have to adjust your screen a little bit. Your nertamid there, there you go, there you go. The nertamid. So can you draw a, um, a dotted line, a straight line uh, to this Parsha, to the nertamid? Is there any connection?
2: well there is there is a dotted line i mean the, there are two in in the temple or tabernacle architecture as described in in the books of aygrand and, and bimbar there are two uh, sort of highly poetic in, in in tabernacle terms and temple terms quite specific but in poetic you know in in, in post temple post tabernacle terms quite poetic uh, sources which are in our parsha esh tamid tukad Alhamizbeah, lutikhbe a perpetual fire, or tamid in the Bible, probably does mean daily, um, as opposed to uh, you know a, a more adverbial kind of like perpetual. But but you are supposed to keep the fire always burning on the altar. Don't let it go out. And then in Numbers, in in I forget the number of the chapter, but Behalotcha is the parsha. Every single day, Aaron lights the lights, lights the lights, and those are also described as being perpetual and tamid. And it's just tremendously poetic because we try to we strive to create holy spaces that always have the fire burning. And so by the time we have our our post, you know, our post-ancient synagogues or medieval or into our modern synagogues, we love the fact and we celebrate the fact that we always keep the fire burning. It signifies that it's always open, it's always alive, it's always vigorous. And so I just I just find this this comment about. Um, always keep the fire burning. It's a Matiz Yahu song. You know he he appreciates he appreciates uh Tamid continually. The fire burns. You know continuously. Um, and I just I just find this tremendously moving as spiritual guidance. Right? Not only technical guidance for a holy space that there should always be radiance, but you have to ask yourself: How do I, you know, how do I nurture? that sense of interior enthusiasm, as we were talking about before the, uh, before the call began, fired by enthusiasm.
0: We're fired, so. we're fired We have to mention
2: that here we have an example where
0: technology brings us great convenience, but also limits our participation. And part of the change from the regular or the daily offering to the eternal or perpetual flame has to do with technology. Now, most of us use electricity. And so we don't really tend to the eternal light, right? We only notice when it goes out and we have to change the light bulb. Yeah. But in the Mishkan and in the temple, the fire had it required work to keep it going. And so the Kohanim were always involved in keeping the fire going and it presents a very different model of religious worship and religious enthusiasm. You
2: know, you we were yeah, talking about, yeah, before, before, before we went on, we were talking about the fact that the that the ancient rabbinic sources note that certain clans were responsible for firewood. Like their job in the temple was firewood. and they they brought it day after day after day, and it was exactly as Barry said, it was its own hard work. I mean, this particular one, I'm having a little smile at this because um, I mean, I bet you at least ten and possibly fifteen years ago, um, as this environmental thing I put in, this low water, low energy um, uh, LED bulb in there, and it's still going, baby. Still going, it's still
1: going. still going. Well, it's so interesting, you know, that that in in the secular world, the eternal flame, which does have some kind of quasi-religious significance, is a memorial flame. I know at the in the uh, in front of the Parliament buildings in Ottawa, there is an eternal flame. And it's right there in the middle. And it's something very moving to see. Uh, it's a, in a fountain and it's, it's gushing up and uh, uh, it's a memorial flame. And uh, memorial be. flames are kept eternally. And, and I think it touches the same notion of sacrifice because who are we remembering? We are remembering those who sacrificed themselves, their lives for the sake of our freedom and the sake of our, of our survival. So in a way we have changed, I, I, I would go anthropologically, into this direction that, that the, the flame represents something. I wanna add one more thing, which is the fact that the flame on the altar was to be kept burning eternally had a very important function. One is that they didn't need to light it all the time. And, and assuming that in, in an era when you know, the portability of fire or the, the creation of fire was not so simple, that was an added advantage. But more importantly, the perpetuation of the flame Meant that it was continued from the original ignition of the flame, namely when the, the when the sanctuary altar gets inaugurated, the the fire comes out of heaven. So every single thing that is going to be offered uh, up on the altar from that point on has the is is related to the first flame. It's been kindled by the first. Combustion that that is that is uh, triggered. That I mean, in chemical terms, it's all related to
2: that. that that's you know, Elliot. That that is. I mean, this is a, you know, you and I sometimes will sort of be on on um, like we were last week about sure. about you know whether whether the the laying hands on the sacrifice was about establishing uh, honest and, and appropriate chain of ownership and designating it was was it about like identifying the self with the with the sacrifice? You and I sometimes will be on different different sides of, like, just how mythic we want to get about these things. But what you just said is, is to me, a really interesting and vivid example. Okay, okay, so you you or I might say, you know, back from Moshe's time until the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, what, do you really think that it never went? The experience of being an Israelite, the experience of being a Jew, is all about feeling, you know, v'tetzei eishmi Adonai, and, and the the fire comes from, from before the Lord and consumes the sacrifice and boom, triggers this whole thing that never goes out to this very day to feel like cont- contiguous, continuous. I'm part of this. It's like it's so it's so intense that even if you don't believe it as a fact, I think you're, you're sort of called upon to believe it as a truth. As, a, as, a, as Aristotle says, sometimes poetry is truer than history. And, and this is one of those cases.
1: Well, it's interesting you mention that because we do, we're not a reliquary religion. We don't keep things around you know, in, the, in the ark that are relics. Uh, but we, we do have that sensibility with regard to text because we truly believe that the Tanakh that we have, the Masoretic text that we use, is um, pretty much the same text that that was uh, you know composed and compiled and edited and put together from from you know twenty five hundred how many years ago during the, the the exile et cetera I mean that process itself complicated as it is we every time we open a Tanakh you know we we are making that kind of contact especially you know this week there was a, a something in the news about a discovery or a rediscovery of a of an ancient scroll, uh, fragments of scroll from the Dead Sea, uh, and other Dead Sea caves. These are things that are so exciting because they they really do connect us to our past. Barry, you wanted to say? No, so I wanted to make a comment
0: about nomenclature. So I was thinking when you were talking that it would be interesting to know when the name Meir came to be more popular in the Jewish tradition, sure. because Meir is someone who brings the light. So. You know, the Rabbi Meir we know is post-destruction of the temple. And the name that we associate with light before the destruction of the temple is Uriah, where the light is God. And then we go to the man making his own light. Mm. The other thing that I wanted to say is that um, what we're talking about with the fire coming from God and then carrying forward is the flip side of the Keiwu moment in the Haggadah. In the Haggadah, we read ourselves back into history but the comment about the, the light being connected to the eternal or as we were talking earlier, the original rabbis being connected to Moshe is projecting from a moment forward. And what I was thinking about is that when Notre Dame caught fire a year or so ago, there was a great break in tradition because this thing that had been built seven 800 years ago that had stood in the skyline of Paris for so long was suddenly not there. And people realize that there is was a, this- It's a part rash. of their lives, a part of their landscape, it's gone,
1: yeah. yeah.
2: Well, we feel that, I mean, um, we New Yorkers feel that about, you know, 9-11. I mean, I bought a I bought a photograph actually just after 9-11. It's like, you know, it's a slightly schlocky, but still beautiful photograph. After 9-11, it has a lower Manhattan and there's the Brooklyn Bridge, and the Woolworth Tower and the Twin Towers in a line. Yeah. And it's struck it's so, um, me, it's so cool, so well uh, composed as a photograph, these major achievements of, uh, of New York architecture.
1: Wow, so you want to hear cool. We got to talk about fat, okay? The fat, you gonna show fat. a picture? I don't want to show you the picture. Oh, you I show don't... the picture. <laughs> you want to show the picture? I don't want to show the picture. Tell just, the people, just the animal the animal right, just, just, not the rest of it. just a second I'll show you the picture ah, never mind so so the, you you could imagine you could imagine that that th- these are the fat enclosed organs okay of an animal you're not allowed to eat and you are not only you're not allowed to eat but they became a significant part of the sacrifice okay now now bear bear me out this, I, I did I did some some research on this I read uh, Mary Douglas's, Leviticus as literature, one of the most spellbinding books on Leviticus you would ever read. <laughs> what the, Barry, it, it's the...
0: When did you <laughs> fall asleep <I> at <laughs> <pay. I'm, laughs> <a teacher. laughs>
1: Never mind. Some of us really enjoy this stuff. Okay, so so she says as follows. Now, listen to this, okay? She says, what you're doing when you make a sacrifice, okay, you are piling the animal in different ways. At the bottom is the head and the upper cavity of the animal, the ribs. Then you have the chalev, which is the suet fat, the hard fat with the liver and the kidneys. And then you have the innards and you have the other procreative organs on the top. And everything gets ignited and it lifts up. And she says as follows, this is to connect the worshiper to both the architecture of the Mishkan, which had the outer court, the inner court, and the Kodesh Kodeshim, and also the Mount Sinai, which had the base, the middle, and the top. From the middle and the top, the cloud covered, she says, the Chelev, the fat suet, white suet, was... Representative of the cloud, and she is saying that the drama of of offering a sacrifice is a constant recreation of the Sinai experience, Whoa. and also encapsulates the Mishkan in the act of sacrifice itself, so that the worshipper is being experiencing. The covenantal moment, as the worshipper is bringing the sacrifice, that,
0: it goes more than that because the way you described it, we have Sinai as a vertical experience, yes. and the Mishkan is a horizontal experience, right. and the sacrifice combines the two. That's right. So, so, That's so spectacular. I
2: me a question about that. So Yashar Koach that really you, was like, combining. But let me you, ask a question. You. I didn't entirely understand one thing. So you described. I guess an olah, which right, which is totally burned. What's what about the what about the zvachim that are mostly eaten? Like, how, I mean, whatever. Here,
1: here's your mishkan, okay. Here's your mountain, and here's the pile of the sacrifice. So at the bottom is your head and your front. This is the suet, the fat, and this is the innards, okay. And this is at the top. That's what an olah looked like. He was chopped up. It would then you had the, the 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 suet in the middle, and then you had the the guts. Okay, and this was the mountain. The people are at the base of the mountain. The cloud is at the top, and Moshe is at the top. And this is the Mishkan. The Mishkan is the outer court. So the suet, the the is right here at the at the veil between the outer court and the inner court. Sorry, it's this veil and the Holy of Holies. This is this is where the suet is, and so you can see. Barry, you're absolutely right. You know the, the the sanctuary represents it in linear in a linear plane. The the mountain is in a in a three dimensional. And I thought she this was it's such a brilliant brilliant analysis. So I have to share it with our viewers and listeners.
2: That is totally brilliant. But I just wanted to 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 the, just to return to the the one question. Like, what is the edible parts? No edible parts. But, no, a well, the, well, there's not. But what what if it's but what if it's a what if it's a todah or, or a so
1: you don't you don't eat the chalav is not permitted precisely like blood it has this representation she says she her claim is blood is related to life the chalav is related to the anam. the is re- and therefore because it's godly in representation you don't eat it it's a brilliant well,
2: I, I got i got this part but i'm saying that for the, for those sacrifices that you do eat yes what happens because the calib is also offered to throw it the onto effect.
1: the altar. It burns
2: up. So the interesting is so that so yeah, you yeah. put the you put the, the edible parts on top and then at a certain point you just remove them.
1: That's correct. Yeah. Okay. It's like your
0: barbecue. And yeah, some of them were boiled.
2: Some of the some boys, were
1: boiled, right. But right.
0: what's interesting is that the suet, the way you describe it, is in the middle. It's not middle. on top. So not, it's, a, it's a bridge. It's not representing God. It's our avenue to God. Because exactly, exactly absolutely, One sauce us is going to go on top of it, and there's going to be a mixing of both, a going up and a going down. And by the way,
1: suet. This is not. It's not permissible food. We do not eat that fat. It's discarded. And and uh, in in non-Jewish uh, cuisine, it's it's actually uh, used to rendered it makes a real thick fat and a tallow it goes into candles and also in 19th century 18th century food uh it becomes like a shortening it's just you just you just don't
2: want your suet i don't know anyway uh on that note we got we gotta shift go ahead and that was very very good for everyone's cardiac health and <laughs> <laughs> right. the association thanks you
1: wait, wait wait we're talking <laughs> about the fat tail there's a video. There's this guy on the on YouTube. He's like in Azerbaijan or whatever. He he took the the fat tail of a sheep, and you see the guy. He's like having this 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 bliss experience by barbecuing and roasting the fat. No you know, Anyway, uh, <laughs> the end of the parsha is the, the, end of the parsha is the ordination ceremony. That we're going to talk about it at Shmini when 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 the 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 when everything goes wrong the point is that the parsha has as its culmination the instructions for how the priests how the koanim get to be priests one little moment here is that they have to be sequestered for seven days and seven days is very very significant seven days is a transition phase it's the passage time when a baby is born male baby seven days uh, seven days for a wedding, seven days of Shiva, seven days of Sukkot, and seven days of Pesach. And that is how we're going to get into Pesach now. We're going to shift gears completely. Feel the clutch here, and we're going to change gears. Halach ma'anya. We are sitting down to the Seder Saturday night. We can't wait to experience the joy of our redemption and the ability to gather together. Some of us may be gathering with more people, some with less. We wish everyone a beautiful Pesach, but we want to share a couple of thoughts. Halachma Anya. Let's talk about the bread of affliction, bread of affliction.
0: Mary Chesler. So, this is one of my favorite passages, the Halachma Anya. At the very beginning of the Seder, we lift the matzah and call it the bread of affliction. This is the bread that we imagine our ancestors ate in Egypt. By the time we make Hamotzi a little later in the Seder, it's going to become the bread of freedom. And it's a kind of transubstantiation, as it were, in a Jewish form, where the same matzah that represents slavery is now going to represent freedom. And what I really, really like about this is that the present exists every year in the same place, that now we are slaves, next year we will be free. That even though we have experienced the exodus mythically, personally, historically, Every year we come to the Seder as slaves, and we have to do our spiritual work so that we can taste freedom by the time we get to the meal.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very complicated um, announcement, this halachmanya. I also think that it, it's the device for locating yourself. Hashatahacha means here, now here we are, here we are. And, and when, you, when you stop and meditate on here we are, we are, we are looking at ourselves in, in terms of time. Jews are always looking at themselves in, in, in a dual, at least a dual time. We have our secular time and our, reg, and our Jewish time. But, but um, I did some calculation. I, I consulted a, a chart. You know what year this is Is the Exodus? This is year, according to this guy who, who you know, I don't know his name here. This is year 3,333. Cool. Okay. cool, cool. Okay, cool, cool. cool. Three thousand three hundred thirty-three since the Exodus, and if you're counting from that moment, that's the time. So, so I I, I um, estimated a forty-year generation. So I did the following exercise. Let's bear me out here. It's about so 3,303 300, 3, years ago. That's about eighty something, ninety, maybe hundred generations. Sit on your sit sit in your shul, okay. And beside you is your father, beside your father is your grandfather, beside your grandfather is your great-grandfather, beside your great-grandfather is your great-great-grandfather, and on and on and on and on. All you have is about 100. And you know what the, the, the great joy is, that I may not be able to speak the same language as my 100th ancestor, but I have the same story. I have the same story. It's just, um, it's just unbelievable. It's not well, just the same story. You have the same
0: experience because of that great line, Keilu.
1: That
0: is K'ilu. why we have to look at ourselves as if we left Egypt because the story is not
2: enough. That's awesome. Um, you know, Ben Gurion has, has had this great line, um, you know, about the Mayflower and he he said something about yeah the mayflower and you americans you write down the name of the people in the mayflower i don't know the names of the people who were at my founding event but i know what they had for dinner yeah (laughs) Uh, so you know i want to say just a word about halach ma'anya and 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 we talked about the um barry mentioned in particular the kind of ambivalence of the symbol i don't mean ambivalent and feeling ambivalent i mean the multi ways that it can go it's the bread of freedom it's the bread of oppression it's the lechem oni it's the bread of poverty it's it's that this the symbol of liberation it's the it's the it's the it's called lechem oni as a pun on on the question the, the the bread on which you answer lots of questions or something but uh i i do have a, one of my new hagadot this year the the, the fruits of the freedom the the, the, the the botanical haggadah uh by uh, a fellow i know here in new york named john greenberg who's a who's a He's a is a science teacher at the Heschel High School. He's also a Tamid Chacham, and he's got a very lovely Haggadah, which you can find on his website called Torah Flora. It's about biblical botany and, and ancient botany, and what you can learn about Jewish tradition from from that stuff. And he and he has a great comment about the um, the unleavened quality of the bread. You know, uh, he, he notes that like commercially available yeast is a, it's a new pretty thing. much of a modern product, right? Like exactly. They certainly didn't have it in the ancient world. And even in even in the ancient world and even in, in uh you in know the medieval times, it was like you know, tied to brewing. You didn't you certainly didn't have the easy ability to get um, to get to get yeast and bread was basically made by sourdough, um fermenting dough, which you kept. And he doesn't say this, but the point is that you um at Pass at Passover every year, you throw out last year's dough. Yeah. Starting anew, and that is a great act of faith that this coming year is going to be is going to be brand new. but one of the things that he said about um about the lechemoni part is that uh, Egypt was a technologically very sophisticated society and it did have a big brewing industry and so it had relatively better access to yeast and and you could produce all kinds of uh, f- you know for for the ancient world like like advanced kind of bread and And uh, unleavened bread is something that shepherds would eat. So, and to this day, Bedouin, I think, are are more oriented towards unleavened bread. So uh, his claim is that part of the experience of Pesach is leave behind the technologically advanced and morally corrupt society of Egypt for a kind of uh, outward poverty, but inner purity. Right, like you, like the, they, they were going back to being their Bedouin ancestors. They're going back to being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, they're going back to being shepherds, and they were they were like consciously leaving. They were consciously archaizing and leaving behind all that fancy fancy bread making.
1: That's a fascinating. Comment. You know, the shepherd really is the archetype of the free person. The free, as opposed to the farmer. The the the, sh- the shepherd is free to roam. The farmer has is is. Connected to a very a, a specific patch of land, and of course, you know the farm uh, creates a whole agricultural uh, infrastructure that is then taken advantage of by
0: by monarchs. Uh, uh, so it also creates civilization, and we shouldn't lose sight of, of that. Of course, of course. The worst part of agriculture is the culture part. So I want to offer a slightly different interpretation here that I like what Jeremy said about the shepherd and the unleavened bread, but what we need to remember as well, that unleavened bread or bread belongs to the farmer. And the original farmer was Cain. The original shepherd was Abel. When we bring the Pesach, the Korban Pesach, the shepherd's offering together with the matzah, the farmers offering, we are creating a kind of cosmic harmony that we want in our own lives. Oh, well, I, I would great.
1: disagree with you. I disagree with you. I think we're creating a disjunction to, to the farm. I think we're, 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 we're separating ourselves from, from that locked existence. I know you need, we need it. Of course, we need it. But there's, we're at a primitive stage of, of, of Israel's history where, where they're either romanticizing their, their uh, shepherd past. Let, let, let's let's, but let's, but let's
2: just say, but let's just say about about Barry's point, though. It, each of these things can be true about uh, about romanticizing, you know, the shepherd or leaving behind, you know, whatever technological sophistication. But this is the holiday of family togetherness. Sure, it's, it's the, the holiday where on Shabbat Hagadol we, we imagine that Elijah will return the hearts of the parents towards the children, the children towards the parents. And one could imagine, like the 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 age old in the words of. I forget who was the lyricist, Rogers or Hammerstein or whatever. But you know the 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 cowman and the farmer should be friends, but they never are because they have separate interests. And so if you have Al Matzot Umurarim Yochluhu, you have to have both of those people. You have to have the the meat raiser and you have to have the the bread right. grower, and you have to have Pesach together, which which maybe heals that murderous Cain Abel trouble. Okay.
1: Good, good. Nice. Alright, Let, let's go to the mitzvah and it goes through that and it says even though they're all wise all excellent, discernible all elderly and all knowing the Torah Mitzvah we are commanded to list up here to tell Rabbi Jeremy Kamanovsky we are commanded to tell what does that mean?
2: Commanded to tell. Well, we we you the three of us have spoken in the past about uh, the rabbis know how to uh, talk about learning. There's a specific verb for reading the Bible, which is koreh, and there's a, a specific verb for learning Mishnah, which is shoneh, and there's a, a different verb which is used here, um, uh, which is to tell a tale. Okay, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and I think that there's a difference. In the experience of telling a tale, telling a narrative, than in conventional Torah study. Um, I happened to look in, in the, the Mishnah says what the Haggadah says. The Haggadah is a, a quotation of the Mishnah, and it's mitzvah saperb it's mitzrayim. it's you have to tell the tale. I looked in the Tosefta, which for those of our listeners here, Tosefta is like a is like the the stuff that didn't make it into the Mishnah of the same era. Cutting
1: room floor of the Mishnah. Studying room
2: floor, and in the Tosetta it says that you have to, and and that story of the the rabbis who stayed up all night. It says that they were that they were oskim behilchot They were they were studying the laws, and notably that's the, so the Mishnah knows that that's a phrase in its disposal, and it chooses not to use it. Yeah. It says. It says, and we don't study the laws of Pesach. We don't Koreh. We don't read the Bible. We don't Shonah. We don't study the Mishnah. We tell a tale, and that is, I think, a broader, um, more ex- access. It is. It is a broader because it has greater content than either Koreh or Shonah. Yeah, yeah. But it's also more broadly accessible. More people can be involved in this, and I think the like. Listen, this is this is a religion in which telling a tale is where you, as an individual Jew find the meaning of your life in a story that's bigger than your life. Barry Chesley.
0: What I would add is that telling means that we have to hear, that a story that is told must be heard and hearing is a special sense. We see much farther than we can hear, but hearing connotes an understanding that is not always accessible when we see things. And I think that the image I have is of people having to tell the story because this is a communal story. It's not an individual story. If we're just reading a book, that's our own experience. Even if we're alone, we have to say it out loud because someone has to hear. There's one imperative that all Jews know, even though we don't always see it. And that is Shema. We're supposed to listen, we're supposed to understand. And by telling it, we have a kind of access that we hope and sometimes get to God, because our invisible God speaks through a voice, and that voice we can hear, and God can hear our voice. I think that also is part of our telling of the story, that we are speaking to God. It, you know, you
1: both raise a, a fascinating valence to this, that, that it's a communicative, it's a it it is it is essential in terms of the the way that we transmit the story. I just want to share with you a, a quote I wrote it in my own uh, in the shul supplement here about storytelling. You know, uh, you you could both recall uh, our Friday evenings at Ramah. I, d- I dabbled in uh, storytelling. I go back, nice back a long long year. time. Great. But I, I I I studied with the best. Okay, and they they. There is a woman named Ruth Sawyer as a book called The Art of the Storyteller and her quote is as follows. Not a clever sharing of the mind alone, but rather a sharing of heart and spirit. To be a good storyteller, one must be gloriously alive. And I think that that, that so captures the sense of this is the night that we have to be alive. We have to be alive with full heart, with full soul, to convey with love and with joy, and with delight, and with food and with play and with all kinds of curiosity. Don't you forget know, wine. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's close out with Chayav Adamki. Lirata atzmo ki ilu. A person has to see himself/herself as if he/she left. You have to imagine. What is what is your favorite teaching on that very very profound line of the Haggadah? I'm going to Turn to. About Jeremy
2: Kalmanowski. Oh, it's a great line. First of all, Keilo, I mean, religion is an imaginative exercise. It's not about the facts of the world. It's about seeing, seeing beneath and between the lines, and beneath the crust to to what's within. And so, Keilo really works beautifully. Um, but I think my favorite little riff on that comes from a Hasidic master of the 19th century named Yitzhak Boyaner, who said. Um, a person, people have to see themselves. And then it's like you left Egypt. Nice. That, moment, that moment of self-understanding with the meaning of your life, you as an individual, you as a member of the community, you see yourself, you're liberated. Very. I
0: think there are many times in our lives when we want to start over and sometimes we can't. But this reminds us that we can never start over, not ourselves and not as a people, that we have a past, the past has not always been glorious, and we have to remember each part of the past in order for us to be whole human beings. So, so
1: What's your favorite? I, I just heard a, a beautiful interview with Tova Feldsche, the actress, uh, actor, and and. Uh, She said, when I get on the stage, I get to spend two hours inside someone else's body. I get to spend two hours, you know, inside someone else's life. Aki'ilu. I get to live ki'ilu, she's saying. And I think one of the things, the the most important thing that we overlook at the Seder, the most important symbol at the Seder is you. You are the most important. You're not edible. (laughs) (laughs) You're not edible, but you are the most important symbol, and you are there, ki'ilu. You're representing all those the hundred generations. Your your father and your mother all the way back, all the way down. You know they're they're sitting with you in the sanctuary. I'm talking to them. You know we're 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 here on a virtual space, so it's you know We're together. We we have such profound you know experiences together, but it's chayav. And, and this is the, what we're sharing here, that, that let this evening be an evening of imagination, of, st- of curiosity, of, of joy, of delight, of life, of just embracing life and, and just embracing each other in the ways that we can, even in limited ways. So these are the things we want to share with you. So on behalf, but I'll let you guys say it yourselves. on behalf everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. We look forward to joining you next week on another edition of Parsha Talk and Chag Talk, Pesach Talk. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom,
0: Chag Sameach. Radio בברקשרס קורמה 123 מיישים קראת האוויר